The Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, differed from other labor unions in many ways. It was more militant, more radical, and more willing to accept women, immigrants, and African Americans into its ranks. But most distinctive of all was how much the IWW members, nicknamed the Wobblies, liked to sing. The Wobblies sang all the time. They had songs for picket lines. They had songs for meetings. They had songs for funerals. They had songs to mock scabs workers brought in to break strikes. They even had songs to sing in jail, which was a pretty regular thing for the Wobblies. A favorite strategy of the Wobblies was to take a well-known tune, often a hymn or a political anthem, and rewrite the words. Everyone knew the melody to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, so everyone felt confident singing along to the IWW anthem, Solidarity Forever. Solidarity Forever. Solidarity Forever. Solidarity Forever. For the Union makes us strong. When the Union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the Union makes us strong. That's a Pete Seeger recording from 1998. So how do those words ring to you? I hear them as uplifting and inspiring. But that was not the reaction of many or perhaps even most Americans in 1919. Factory owners and managers felt attacked. Forces of law and order felt threatened. Even more alarming were the words of wobbly leaders like Big Bill Haywood. He once declared, I despise the law, and I am not a law-abiding citizen. That was terrifying. Over the years since the founding of the Union in 1905, a conviction had grown at all levels of the United States government that the Wobblies were dangerous and had to be stopped. In 1919, as a record number of strikers walked off the job, it was an open question When the workers of the United States needed organization more than ever, would the Wobblies be able to help? Would the Wobblies even survive? This is the year that was, 1919. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thank you so much for joining me as we look at history one year at a time. I want to start by apologizing for missing last week. I had a choice over Thanksgiving week to either buckle down and get this episode out or to sleep late and relax with the family and eat too much pie. Alas, I chose pie, but it was a wonderful break and I think I really needed it. In any case, I'm back with a great story this week about workers and strikes and unions and court cases. And we're going to start about a decade before the war and work our way to 1919. But you really need the context of everything that came before to understand how important that year really was. 
So the IWW, the union was founded in 1905 in Chicago at a remarkable convention that brought together miners and factory workers, socialists and radicals. The group united miners from the Mountain West with factory workers from the Midwest, immigrants with women's rights advocates, intellectual socialists with unskilled laborers. Leading the charge was William Dudley Haywood, known to all as Big Bill. Haywood was born in Salt Lake City in 1869. His father, a former Pony Express rider, died when Bill was three, and his mother remarried and moved the family to a rough mining camp in Ophir, Utah. Haywood was blinded in one eye by an accident at age seven and left school two years later to work in a silver mine. Later, he joined the Western Federation of Miners, or WMF, and worked his way up to join the organization's National Executive Board. The WMF was hated by mine owners, and Haywood spent years traveling incognito through the West, holding meetings with miners in the middle of the night and evading militia troops and anti-union vigilantes. Big Bill was, as his name implied, a tall, strong guy with a dominating physical presence. It was easy to see Haywood as a thug. Certainly, he was no pacifist. It was once said he heaved an enemy through a plate glass window. But Big Bill had a warm heart. People described his compassion and empathy for the suffering of the working people. He also had a powerful ability to communicate with any audience in any circumstance, whether shouting a speech to thousands of furious strikers or speaking in the back room of some rundown bar to a small group of immigrant workers who barely understood him. Author John Reed described Haywood in exactly this sort of encounter. He towered in the center of the room. His big hands made simple gestures as he explained something to them. His massive, rugged face, seamed and scarred like a mountain, and as calm, radiated strength. The IWW would need Haywood's strength to combat bosses accustomed to driving workers as hard as they liked. Industry in the United States had adopted a dog-eat-dog mentality where competing companies proved their strength in mano-a-mano combat. To intervene in the market was anathema. For one thing, government had no business interfering in private enterprise. For another, it went against nature to support the weak against the strong. The weak had to strengthen or perish. Unions had no place in this vision. Management didn't negotiate with employees. Do generals negotiate with foot soldiers? Besides, employees were free and independent actors. If they didn't like the jobs they had, they could go get new ones. Footnote, the job market doesn't work like that. Furthermore, unions were felt to be a European import and therefore suspect. From its beginnings, the labor movement in the United States fought against association with imported radicalism. The National Union, most successful in separating itself from this hint of alienness, was the American Federation of Labor, founded in 1886. And let's clarify one thing while we have the chance. We will encounter several different types of unions in this episode. One is the craft union, which organizes workers according to their skill or trade. Electricians, for example. Another is the industrial union, which organizes all workers in a certain industry. Everyone who works in the automobile industry, for example. 
Then there are general unions that represent workers from any industry or trade. The IWW was a general union, and many of its members were also members of industrial unions, which was fine. Finally, there are confederations, which are national coordinating groups whose actual members are other craft or industrial unions. The American Federation of Labor was a confederation of craft unions, so its members were groups such as the Machinists Union, the Cigar Makers Union, and so on. The AFL provided support, guidance, and nationwide coordination. Its member unions represented skilled trades, jobs that required years of training. They did not represent unskilled workers who could walk in and do any job that required a strong back. The leader of the AFL was Samuel Gompers, a pragmatic thinker determined to avoid the pitfalls that had sunk many other unions. He did everything possible to cultivate the reputation of the AFL as a reasonable, cooperative organization and to avoid any radical associations. That meant strictly limiting membership to people considered, shall we say, safe. Women were barred, as were African-American, Asian, or Latinx workers. The union also took a strong anti-immigration stance. Gompers worked toward reasonable, step-by-step improvements in the lives of workers, and over time, it achieved many of its goals. To Haywood, this was deplorable. All workers should throw off their chains, not just some elite few. Either everyone was free or no one was free. The Wobblies targeted unskilled workers, even those who were unemployed. The origin of the nickname Wobbly, by the way, is unknown. The members, however, proudly claimed it. Anyway, the goal of the Wobblies was to bring together as many people as possible. The message was that victory would come through unity. The IWW was unabashedly socialist, with an emphasis on class and a deep distrust of capitalism. What the Wobblies wanted instead of the current capitalist system was never explained, but that wasn't the point. IWW members weren't interested in ideology. And the union was happy to work toward incremental progress, like an eight-hour workday. This set the Wobblies apart from the really hardcore communists who insisted that the only solution to capitalism was total revolution. This though, was the sort of distinction that the American middle class failed to recognize. It was enough that the IWW adopted the red flag and sang the Internationale. The Wobblies were considered dangerous revolutionaries who would topple society if given half the chance. Well, I'm a mild-mannered guy as I can be. Ain't doing nobody harm that I can see. Still on me they put a ban, Lord, they throw me in the can. They go wild, simply wild over me. They accuse me of rascality. I don't know why they're always picking on me. I'm gentle as a lamb, but they take me for a ram. And they go wild, simply wild over me. Oh, that cop, he went wild over me. And he held his gun where everyone could see He was breathing rather hard when he saw my union card He went wild, simply wild over me That's Eric Glatt singing The Popular Wobbly on a recording called Rebel Voices. 
Legal attacks on the Wobblies began within a year of its founding when several leading members were arrested and charged with the murder of the former governor of Idaho, Frank Stunenberg. The facts of the case were this. Stunenberg had been mortally wounded in December 1905 when a bomb rigged the gate of his home exploded. The police soon took into custody one Harry Orchard, who confessed to the crime and explained that he had been angry with the former governor when he blocked Orchard's attempt to secure ownership of a mine. Orchard was a former Western Federation of Miners member, which you'll recall was where Haywood got his start. The Idaho police took some unusual steps investigating this case. In fact, they didn't investigate it at all, but rather turned it over to James McParland, a private detective in the employ of the Pinkerton Agency. Important bit of background here, Pinkerton was who factory owners called if they wanted someone to infiltrate unions, guard factories, confront picketers, and intimidate workers. During the homestead strike of 1892 in Pennsylvania, what was basically a battle broke out between Pinkerton agents and striking workers. When it was over, three agents and seven steel workers lay dead. McParland was one of the most famous Pinkerton agents. Back in the 1870s, McParland infiltrated a secret society of coal miners operating in western Pennsylvania known as the Molly Maguires. McParland gathered evidence of various crimes and murder plots. His testimony sent 10 men to the gallows. The Molly Maguires were crushed and unionism disappeared from the region for decades. McParland's exact role has always been disputed. Did he truthfully report on the activity of a criminal organization? Or did he falsify evidence against leaders the mine operators wanted gone? In any case, McParland was handed the case against Orchard, and he made several unusual decisions. He ordered that before the trial... Orchard would be housed in the Boise Penitentiary on death row. He was placed under constant surveillance and his access to food was severely restricted. Basically, they kept the man half starved. After a few weeks of this, McParland had a meeting with Orchard over a, quote, sumptuous lunch, followed by cigars. McParland told Orchard that the only way he could escape hanging was by implicating members of the IWW. Furthermore, if Orchard named the right men, he, Orchard, would receive better treatment, more food, cigars, even a financial reward. Orchard, no fool he, produced a 64-page confession in which he took responsibility for 17 murders and named four wobbly leaders as participating in the murder of Stunenberg. I just don't think Jack McCoy would approve. The whereabouts of one of the Wobblies was unknown, but three of them, including Haywood, were in Denver. Using an extradition order of dubious legality and even more dubious methods, the three men were arrested and rushed to Idaho. According to Wobbly legend, Haywood was captured at a brothel. The trial was held in May of 1907 and received enormous press attention. Even President Teddy Roosevelt weighed in, calling the three Wobblies undesirable citizens. 
Haywood responded that he was innocent until proven guilty and that the President of the United States, of all people, should know that. Meanwhile, Wobblies took to wearing buttons that read, I am an undesirable citizen. Clarence Darrow decided to take the case and fight for the lives of the Union men since the death penalty was a real possibility. It turned out to be not that difficult for the famous defense attorney. Orchard was a terrible witness and made a number of easily disproven claims. Even his name was contested, with it eventually becoming clear that Orchard was one alias among several. Darrow called him, quote, the most monumental liar that ever existed. When it came time for Darrow to make his summation, he said the following of Haywood. I don't claim that this man is an angel. The Western Federation of Miners could not afford to put an angel at their head. Do you want to hire an angel to fight the Mine Owners Association and the Pinkerton Detectives and the power of great wealth? Oh, no, gentlemen, you'd better get a first-class fighting man who has physical courage, who has mental courage, who has strong devotion, who loves the poor, who loves the weak, who hates inequity and hates it even more when it is with the powerful and the great. Clarence Darrow went on. Don't be so blind in your madness to believe that if you make three fresh new graves, you will end the labor movement. A million men will take up the banner of labor at the open grave where Haywood lays it down in spite of prisons or scaffolds or fire, in spite of prosecution by jury. These men of willing hands will carry it on to victory in the end. The jury found the three wobbly leaders not guilty, while Orchard received a life sentence. This time, I think Jack McCoy would be pleased. With their leaders out of jail, the Wobblies took on one labor dispute after another. The organization was smart, resourceful, disciplined, and inventive. The IWW pioneered the use of the sit-down strike, for example. One of the group's most successful efforts was the strike of textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts. This became known as the Bread and Roses Strike for a slogan used in the campaign. The phrase originated in a speech by woman suffrage activist Helen Todd, who described the importance of not only meeting life's basic needs, but also of growing, learning, experiencing art and music and beauty. The slogan was turned into what I think is the most beautiful of Union songs. In the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. That's a clip from the 2014 movie Pride, and it makes me cry every time I watch it. Okay, anyway, the Bread and Roses strike was triggered by a state law that shortened the work week from 56 to 54 hours. The town's largest employer, the American Woolen Company, or AWC, announced that to accommodate the reduced hours, all workers would be forced to accept a pay cut. 
Textile work was already one of the lowest paid industries, with mill workers earning between $3 and $6 a week, less than half the pay of steel workers. AWC figured it had its unskilled immigrant workers at its mercy. Nevertheless, workers walked out on January 12th, but the action lacked leadership. A call went out to the IWW for help. The Wobblies sent organizer Joseph Etor to town. Etor brought remarkable discipline to the strike. He emphasized the importance of sustained, nonviolent action, even when the governor sent in the state militia. Soldiers and strikers faced off day after day. In one incident, mounted troops pushed their horses dangerously close to the strikers. When one animal appeared reluctant, an immigrant striker laughed, you see, horse, IWW. Then one night, a young woman was killed by gunfire in a confused scrimmage between police and workers. Etor was arrested and charged with murder. The IWW didn't miss a beat. They sent in a new organizer and began raising money for Etor's defense. Finally, as the strike entered its third month, American Woolen agreed to negotiate. Hours were reduced, benefits and wages raised, and adjustments to overtime approved. Other textile mills fell into line. The strike improved the lives of millions and won the loyalty of immigrants who had previously doubted labor would ever help them. When a journalist asked one mill worker his national origin, he replied, I have no country. I am IWW. Incidentally, through the entire strike, the skilled mill workers, members of the AFL, reported to work every day. Etor was tried for murder in September 1912 and acquitted. The IWW continued to win victories for workers, but every step along the way, they were dogged by arrests and prosecutions. One of the most egregious cases came in 1914 at the trial of Joe Hill. Hill was born in Sweden and immigrated in 1901. His original name was Joel Hogland. He bounced around the country from job to job, at various points shoveling coal and manufacturing rope. He joined the IWW in 1910 and discovered that he had a remarkable talent for songwriting. He wrote dozens of hugely popular wobbly songs. For example, it was Hill who transformed the 1899 hymn, There is Power in the Blood of the Lamb, into There is Power in a Union. Would you have freedom from wage slavery and join in the grand industrial band? Would you from misery and hunger be free and come do your share like a man? There is power, there is power in the band of working men When they stand, when they stand Hand in hand, hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand That's American folk musician Joe Glazer, recorded in 1977. Hill could be pointed in his verse. His song, The Preacher and the Slave, was targeted at organized religion, which sometimes preached that individuals should practice humility during their time on earth in exchange for a reward in heaven. You see what Hill thought of that. The long-haired preachers come out every night. I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked about something to eat, uh, they will answer in voices so sweet. You will eat, you will eat by 
That's another folk singer, Utah Phillips, recorded in 2006. Incidentally, the phrase pie in the sky for something pleasant to imagine but unattainable came from this song. Hill's life was transformed forever on January 10, 1914, in Salt Lake City, when a butcher named John G. Morrison and his son Arling were shot in their shop. There was evidence that the shooting was some kind of revenge. Morrison had previously been a police officer, and he had enemies. Later the same night, Joe Hill went to the hospital with a gunshot wound. He claimed to have been injured in a fight over a woman, but as a matter of honor, he would not reveal her name. There was no evidence connecting the two cases and plenty of suspects with actual, you know, motives. Nevertheless, Hill was arrested. Standing on principle, Hill refused to explain how he had received his wound, insisting it was on the state to prove its case, not on him to disprove it. I believe Jack McCoy would agree, but Jack McCoy wasn't in Salt Lake in 1915, and Hill was convicted and sentenced to death by firing squad. The case made headlines not just around the United States, but around the world. Letters poured into the governor's office pleading for clemency from everyone from blind and deaf activist and incidentally wobbly member Helen Keller to the Swedish ambassador to the United States. Even Samuel Gompers, the president of the AFL, wrote on Hill's behalf, and Woodrow Wilson himself twice attempted to get the governor to halt the execution. Nevertheless, on November 19, 1915, Hill was executed. Just before his execution, Hill wrote to Haywood, quote, Goodbye, Bill. I die like a true blue rebel. Don't waste time in mourning. Organize. Don't mourn, organize, became a popular wobbly motto, printed on buttons and carried on banners. Hill also wrote a will in verse, and it was soon set to music and became another popular wobbly song. This is a recording by John McCutcheon, released in 2015. My will is easy to decide, for there is nothing to divide. My kin don't need to fuss and moan. Moss does not cling to a rolling stone. My body, if I could choose, I would to ashes it reduce. Then let the merry breezes blow My dust to where some flower grows So I know we're not anywhere near 1919 yet, but we're getting there. When war began in Europe, the Wobblies criticized it on the same terms as most socialists. This was an imperialist-capitalist conflict. Monarchs and industrialists were sending the working classes to die. Workers should stay out of it and resist if drafted. Big Bill Haywood thundered, It is better to be a traitor to your country than a traitor to your class. 
It was one thing to make such statements in 1914. It was another in 1915 and 1916 as the war progressed. And after the United States joined the fighting in April 1917 and the Espionage Act was passed in June, words like this became illegal. Worse was to come when the Bolsheviks overthrew the moderate interim government in Moscow in the fall of 1917, the Wobblies were viewed by millions as allies of an enemy of the United States. Furthermore, antagonism toward Germany merged with fear of the Bolsheviks. We know, because we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the Bolsheviks hated the Germans. But what the American people knew in 1917 was that Russia had dropped out of the war. When Lenin and company signed the Brest-Litovsk Treaty in March 1918, it was viewed as evidence that the Bolsheviks were allied with the Kaiser. In this heated climate, hostility toward the Union grew, and many Americans became convinced that the Wobblies were enemy spies. The New York Times declared that, quote, IWW agitators are, in effect, and perhaps in fact, agents of Germany. The IWW foundered, uncertain how to proceed, the AFL, meanwhile, took advantage of its relatively moderate reputation, threw its support behind Wilson, and earned enormous concessions for its members. The government was over a barrel. It had serious immediate needs for guns, ships, and ammunition, and basically everything else, and it was willing to pay whatever factories asked to get it. The AFL steadily increased wages, reduced work hours, and improved benefits for its members. But the IWW lost fight after fight. And these were not fights for workers, but fights for survival. Take, for example, Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee was home to the Copper Queen mine, the richest source of copper in the entire country. And in 1917, it was booming. Law enforcement in Bisbee was the responsibility of one Sheriff Harry Wheeler, a dedicated anti-unionist who believed any strike that interfered with wartime production was un-American. Nevertheless, in June 1917, Bisbee mine workers walked out for better wages. Technically, this was a strike of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, but several members of the miners' union were also members of the IWW. That was enough for Sheriff Wheeler and some 2,000 self-appointed guardians of Bisbee who formed themselves into a group called the Citizens Protective League. On June 12th, Wheeler cut off all phone, telegraph, and rail service to Bisbee. He deputized members of the Citizens Protective League to round up every wobbly in town. Armed men raided lodging houses, stopped men on the street, and dragged fathers out of their homes. Hundreds of men were arrested and held under armed guard, while 23 cattle cars were brought in on the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad. 1,300 or so men were forced onto the cars. Remember, it was July in southern Arizona. No water had been provided. The train took off and traveled for 16 hours, finally stopping across the border at Tres Hermanas, New Mexico, 200 miles away. The men were left stranded and told they would be killed if they attempted to return to Bisbee, even if their wives and children were stuck there, even if they owned property in the town. 
The Tres Hermanas sheriff frantically wired the governor of New Mexico for instructions. Word soon reached the White House, and President Wilson ordered U.S. Army troops from a camp in Columbus, New Mexico, to rescue the men. Back in Bisbee, the sheriff and the Citizens Protective League ruled Bisbee for a solid two months, requiring anyone entering the town to have a passport issued by the sheriff's office. Hundreds more men, many of whom had lived in the town for decades, were arrested and tried in a secret court for disloyalty. Many were deported and threatened with death if they tried to return. The Arizona Attorney General demanded to know under what law Wheeler claimed to be acting. The sheriff replied, quote, I have no statute that I had in mind. Perhaps everything that I did wasn't legal. It became a question of, are you American or are you not? The story was reported in the national press, but it wasn't greeted with any particular outrage. All reports emphasized that those deported had been immigrant IWW members. Most Americans concluded that the workers had caused trouble and got what they deserved. Haywood tried to protest, but spent most of his time denying that Germany had ordered the copper strikes. The New York Times sniffed that even if the strikes weren't, quote, paid for by German agents, at any rate, its fruits are for the German benefit. The Los Angeles Times praised the Arizona vigilantes for providing, quote, a lesson that the whole of America would do well to copy. Eventually, Bisbee rejoined the rest of Arizona, and Sheriff Wheeler departed for service with the American Expeditionary Force in France. The U.S. Department of Justice ordered the arrest of mine company executives and several local law enforcement officers, but they were released on the grounds that no federal laws had been broken, only state laws, which the state of Arizona was free to enforce if it wished. The state of Arizona did not wish, and no one involved in the Bisbee deportations ever went on trial. The federal government was far more interested in prosecuting the Wobblies than investigating crimes committed against them. On September 5th, under the Espionage Act, the Justice Department staged simultaneous raids on 48 IWW offices across the country and seized every piece of paper they could find. Various IWW statements were determined to violate the very broad language of the Espionage Act. More than 100 Wobblies, including Big Bill Haywood, were indicted. In April, the trial began in Chicago. Presiding was Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who has one of the best names you will hear over the course of this podcast. Kennesaw Mountain is a location in Georgia, and it was the site of a Civil War battle. Landis's father, a Union soldier, was wounded there in 1864. The judge had a reputation for holding big business to account, but during the war, he oversaw numerous Espionage Act cases and imposed severe sentences on those opposed to the war effort. The Wobblies had little hope he would be on their side. John Reed, who attended the trial, memorably described Landis, who was only in his early 50s, as, quote, a wasted man with untidy white hair, an emaciated face in which two burning eyes are set like jewels, parchment skin split by a crack for a mouth, the face of Andrew Jackson three years dead. Incidentally, Landis was a huge baseball fan. This is not particularly relevant right now, but in a few weeks, it will be. 
Prosecutors charge the Wobblies with a massive nationwide conspiracy to impede the war effort. How we 101 defendants had conspired together to arrange such a conspiracy, we never knew, said one Wobbly. For most of us had never met prior to our arrests. After four months of testimony, the jury needed less than an hour to find the Wobblies guilty. Landis imposed prison sentences ranging from three to 20 years, with the longest terms reserved for the senior leaders, including Big Bill Haywood. When the war ended, the sense of victory was quickly replaced by one of uncertainty. Everyone realized the well-paying jobs building ships and bombs were over. The transition back to a peace economy would take time, and businesses signaled that in the interim, wages would be cut and shifts eliminated. Further, many people hired during the war should expect to lose their jobs. It was the consensus that soldiers deserved their jobs back in exchange for their service. And really, you can't argue with that. It was just too bad if you were a woman or an immigrant or a black man who had taken that job. Not long after the Great Molasses Flood devastated the north end of Boston, shipyard workers on the opposite side of the country went on strike. The Seattle strike began January 21st, when unskilled workers walked off the job for better wages. A local IWW branch was active in Seattle, along with numerous other industry and craft unions, and Seattle had a left-leaning working class. Tension had simmered there since the fall over the use of the Seattle port to send American troops and supplies to fight the Red Army. Remember that from Episode 7, The Polar Bears in Archangel and the Other Troops in Vladivostok? Many had embarked from Seattle, and trade union members had protested loading vessels that would fight the Bolsheviks. In support, 110 of Seattle's labor unions joined the shipyard workers and called a general strike. The United States has not had many general strikes, but they were used widely in Europe, especially in Russia. A general strike had kicked off the overthrow of the Tsar. The very idea seemed alien. Government on every level, from the Seattle City Hall to the White House, freaked out. Federal troops marched into Seattle armed with a machine gun company and 200 hand grenades. The local Wobbly office was raided and 39 members were arrested. The mayor of Seattle, one Ole Hansen, was obsessed with the idea that the Wobblies were behind the strike. Local people joked that Hansen suffered from a case of the wobbly horrors, a fixed belief that the wobblies were responsible for all evils. Hansen thundered that he would save Seattle from violent overthrow at wobbly hands. The fact that no one, wobbly or otherwise, was trying to violently overthrow Seattle didn't seem to register. In fact, a committee of unionists made a point of ensuring that trash was picked up and milk delivered right on time throughout the strike. After five days, the strike was called off. Ole Hansen declared victory and went on a nationwide speaking tour. The Seattle general strike was just the first of a flood of strikes through 1919. More than 3,300 strikes took place that year, and a record number of people walked off the job. Nine separate strikes in 1919 involved more than 60,000 people. The total number of strikers over the course of the year was estimated at 4.1 million. Workers across American industry went on strike. 
telegraph operators, telephone operators, and linotype operators, automobile workers, furniture workers, and cigar makers, phosphate miners, longshoremen, and conductors of streetcars. The Actors' Equity Union went on strike in August when 100 or so actors in 12 Broadway shows walked out in the middle of their performances. Actors protested the practice of requiring actors to work without pay during rehearsals, since rehearsals for new shows could last for months. On August 18th, many actors put together a benefit showcase to raise money. All of the leading lights of Broadway were there. Ethel and Lionel Barrymore, W.C. Fields, Eddie Cantor, Lillian Russell. On September 6th, the strike ended, with the actors getting everything they asked for. Less successful was the Boston police strike that began on September 9th. The police didn't want much, mostly recognition for their trade union and some improvements in wages and working conditions. But Americans were unsettled by the strike. It was viewed as irresponsible to leave the people of Boston without police protection. And in fact, the crooks of Boston took advantage of the situation. The night of September 9th, 10th saw an outbreak of looting and general hooliganism. The next morning, the mayor requested help from the governor, and the Massachusetts State Guard flooded into the city. The governor, a recently elected attorney named Calvin Coolidge, denounced the strike and called the strikers deserters and traitors. Wilson agreed, describing the strike in typically elevated Wilsonian terms as, quote, a crime against civilization. The press responded with hysteria and painted the strike as a Bolshevik plot. The Wall Street Journal screeched, Lenin and Trotsky are on their way. It was decided that no negotiation with the strikers was appropriate. The entire Boston police force was fired and a new force was recruited. I wonder if Frank McManus, the patrolman making his routine call to headquarters when the Purity Distilling Company tank failed, was among them. I wonder what happened to him. Coolidge, meanwhile, became famous for standing up to the Bolsheviks and was a natural pick as Republican Party vice presidential candidate in 1920. A key point about both of these strikes is that the IWW had nothing to do with either. Both Actors' Equity and the failed Boston Police Union were affiliated with the AFL. The AFL also played a role, a very uneasy one, in the biggest strike of the year, that of steelworkers. Steelworkers had long fought to unionize. In 1892, a fight to establish a union at the Carnegie Steel Company mill in Homestead, Pennsylvania, had disintegrated into the battle between the Pinkerton agents and the strikers that I discussed earlier. The AFL had made some inroads into the industry, but steel relied on vast numbers of unskilled workers, a group the AFL disdained. Nevertheless, some in the union thought that an attempt should be made to organize the industry. So a subsidiary group was formed and named the National Committee for Organizing the Iron and Steel Workers. The National Committee began recruiting workers of all skill levels to the anxiety of its parent organization. Steelworkers had enjoyed few of the improvements in wages and working conditions that other industries had seen during the war. Many still worked 12-hour days, six or even seven days a week, with no benefits, sick leave, or vacation. Pressure mounted from the bottom up, especially among those unskilled workers, many of them immigrants, who suffered the most. 
Eventually, these workers issued an ultimatum not to the steel industry, but to their union. Back us or we will act alone. And so on September 22nd, the National Committee called a strike. Half of the steel industry shut down immediately. Both skilled and unskilled workers walked out together, and many of the strikers weren't even union members. In some factories, even office workers joined the strike, so fed up were workers with their treatment. The steel industry had most local and state governments in their pocket, and they came down hard. Many steel towns in western Pennsylvania went into a sort of undeclared martial law. The union hoped the federal government might intervene, but then Wilson had his devastating stroke on October 2nd. The federal government basically seized up. In the early days of Wilson's illness, officials were afraid to act, worried that he would resume work in a matter of weeks and disagree with their decisions. State and local authorities felt free to do as they pleased. Pennsylvania state police dragged strikers from their homes, jailed thousands, and attacked picketers with clubs. In Gary, Indiana, clashes grew so violent that the U.S. Army had to take over the city. Mill owners brought out the same old charges that the strikers were part of a vast Bolshevik conspiracy. To many newspaper readers, it seemed all of a piece, one conspiracy erupting across the nation. In fact, each strike was an individual protest against working conditions in a particular industry, but it was all too easy to see a pattern that wasn't there, or at least was the wrong pattern. What united the strikers was a desire for fair wages and working conditions, not a burning desire to overthrow capitalism. But that's not how the story was told. From the start, the strike was hampered by infighting among different unions and types of union members. At least one union within the National Committee tried to arrange separate negotiations with U.S. Steel, breeding distrust and fears one union would benefit at the expense of others. Management compounded dissent by targeting native-born Americans with the message that immigrant workers were trying to take their jobs. At the same time, they told immigrant workers that the Americans had sold them out. Racial issues were even more divisive. Tens of thousands of African Americans were brought in as strikebreakers. No one was more despised by unions than a scab, and African American scabs were the lowest of the low. Blacks feared for their lives. Over the fall, the strike underwent a slow-motion collapse. By the end of October, workers in Chicago gave in. In November, mills in Gary, Johnstown, Youngstown, and Wheeling were up and running. Finally, in January, the National Committee gave in. Although in a few isolated spots like Pueblo, Colorado, the strike stretched out for a few more months. It had been a disaster. The strikers had won nothing. They had lost credibility and unity. So where in all of this was the IWW? It couldn't have done much for the Boston police, but some wobbly discipline and strategy could have helped the steelworkers. Most of 1919, the wobbly leaders were serving their prison terms, and those outside were trying to raise money to mount appeals. And the organization was showing cracks. Moderate members shied away from association with what was being painted as a treasonous organization. At the same time, the committed socialists within the group leaned even more to the left and joined the new communist parties forming in the U.S. 
Finally, in August 1919, the IWW raised enough cash to release 46 of its members on bond pending appeal. Among them was Big Bill Haywood. But Big Bill was not the towering figure of old. He set on a speaking tour to raise money, but he was struggling with the effects of diabetes and a lifelong drinking problem. The IWW still existed, but its effectiveness as a labor organization was over. That didn't remove the target from its back. The first anniversary of Armistice Day, November 11, 1919, the American Legion held a march in the small lumber town of Centralia, Washington. The IWW had worked for years to organize mill workers in the area against opposition from townsfolk, business owners, and state and local governments. Antagonism was strongest among members of the American Legion, veterans who were damned if they would let the Wobblies bring their treasonous talk to their town. Here's a fun fact. Centralia's Legion post commander, Warren Grimm, had served with the American Expeditionary Force in Siberia. The man had fought against the Red Army and seen what the Bolsheviks were capable of. The people of Centralia listened to Grimm. He was a local high school football star and an All-American at the University of Washington, and he had served with distinction as an officer in Russia. By all accounts, Grimm was a good and honorable man. If he said the Wobblies were dangerous, the people of Centralia believed him. So for Armistice Day, town leaders of Centralia planned a parade. The full contingent of the American Legion planned to march, along with various other civic organizations. The route would take the parade directly in front of the IWW Hall. Rumors swirled in the weeks before that some sort of attack was planned on the hall. The rumors were so pervasive that the Wobblies consulted a friendly local attorney. He was so alarmed that he contacted the governor's office to seek help, but nothing came of it. The owner of the Union Hall, which was a rented building, asked local law enforcement for protection, but was told men couldn't be detached on the basis of a rumor. The Wobblies decided they wouldn't go down without a fight. Quote, I fought for democracy in France, said one, and I'm going to fight for it here. This is a good reminder that there were war veterans on both sides. The Wobblies positioned armed men within the hall and stationed other members on a nearby hill. According to some accounts, they were armed with high-powered rifles. The parade set off, and everything was perfectly normal until just before the American Legion reached the IWW Hall. What happened next is disputed. According to the American Legion, rifle fire began to rain down on the parade. One Legionnaire was killed instantly, and Warren Grimm was fatally wounded. According to the IWW, a group of Legionnaires broke away from the parade and charged the hall. The Wobblies fired in self-defense. In this account, Grimm was shot, leading men into the hall. Whatever happened, the Legion outnumbered the Wobblies. Some Wobblies hid, some got out the back and fled. One Wobbly, Wesley Everest, who had been decorated during his service in France, had fired on his fellow veterans. He had then sprinted out the back door, but was soon overtaken. He killed one of the men attempting to capture him and then was beaten bloody and dragged to jail. In all, four legionnaires were killed. 
It's hard to know who to blame here since the reports are so confused. Both sides seem to have gotten their blood up and the results were fatal. It is shocking today, just as it was in 1919, that an armed battle broke out in the middle of the afternoon at an Armistice Day parade attended by an entire town, including children. Warren Grimm was a father with a wife and an infant daughter. He was highly respected, even by those with differing political views. He shouldn't have died like that. But Armistice Day wasn't over. That night, the streets like in Centralia mysteriously flickered out. The next day, it would become clear why. A mob had walked into the jail and seized Wesley Everett. He was thrown into a car and driven to a nearby railroad bridge. He was beaten, then hanged. Seven IWW members were convicted of murder in what became known as the Centralia Massacre. They received sentences of 25 to 40 years in prison. No one was ever charged for the murder of Wesley Everest. I don't know if I have the heart for the chachunk this time. How about a labor song? I see there a lowering, a riding you coffin. I see there letting down, a riding you coffin. Way over in that union burying ground. And the new dirt's a fallin' on a right new coffin. The new dirt's a fallin' on a right new coffin. Way over in that union burying ground. That's Woody Guthrie, recorded in the 1940s. The wobbly leadership was demoralized and its reputation ruined. It didn't help when, in 1921, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the appeal of the convictions of the Wobbly leaders under the Espionage Act. 37 of the 46 released men went back to prison. Several jumped bail, among them Big Bill Haywood, who boarded a ship for Russia and was next seen hobnobbing with Lenin. He died in 1928. Amazingly, though, the Union survived, and it remains active. It rarely gets front-page news anymore, but it's out there. In 2016, incarcerated workers organized by the IWW held a massive prison strike to protest poor prison conditions and the low pay of prisoners. 1919 is remembered as a disastrous year for American labor, despite the gains made in some industries. Labor was associated more than ever with radicalism and anti-Americanism. The collapse of the steelworkers' strike was particularly devastating. Labor wouldn't again become a force in America until the mid-1930s. In the summer of 1920, a labor historian led a team of field investigators in interviews of 166 steelworkers in Pittsburgh and other Pennsylvania steel towns. One of their sources was a man named Mike Connolly. He had worked in the steel mills for 41 years. Connolly said, quote, it's a prison. We work behind locked doors and can't even leave the mill except for a few minutes at certain times. It's against the Constitution to work a man so hard he can't live. We can't live when we work 12 hours a day with no day off. What right has anybody to go against God's law of making slaves of human beings? 
Connolly went on, and here where he says car, I'm pretty sure he means a streetcar. Now, if I worked eight hours, I could have enough time to spend an hour or so on a car. Then I could live in the suburbs, have a garden, a couple hundred chickens, and know my family as well as have friends. A man could live twice as long if he had the eight-hour day. This way, one doesn't want to live long. What is the use of living, since one doesn't enjoy life? Over the course of the 20th century, labor unions won the eight-hour day, but many Americans working multiple jobs and still unable to feed their families have yet to enjoy the life that Mike Connolly wanted. I don't have an answer, but we have to do better than this. As we go marching, marching, unnumbered women in dead, go crying through or singing their ancient call for bread. Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. Thanks so much for listening to The Year That Was. Next week, December 17th, we're going to look at the 1919 Red Scare. And that story is very closely related to this one. So I hope you join me. Make certain you've subscribed so you get the episode right away. After that, I'm going to take two weeks off for Christmas and the new year. I have been really pushing this fall. And I think I learned over Thanksgiving break that I need to pace myself. So no new episodes the last two weeks of December. Sorry about that. But January 7th, I'll be back. Please join the Facebook group and look for me on Twitter. As always, I invite you to check out the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos and especially for links to the union songs. There are also links to sources, and I don't emphasize that enough. I am only able to do what I do because historians and writers conduct years of research and write amazing detailed books from which I then steal the best anecdotes. So check out the sources. Finally, a quick shout out to recent Apple Podcasts reviewer MC Mickey G, who said, quote, I love this podcast. I thought I knew history pretty well, but I've been introduced to stories which are new to me. Thanks so much. And hey, I didn't know most of these stories before I reached 1919 either. All of the ratings and reviews are great for the podcast and frankly, wonderful for my ego or terrible, depending on if you have to live with me. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was.